0: Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com Alright, as uh, let's go ahead and and pray asking God to to help us as we to help illumine this very long and very bizarre text. So uh, so we'll jump into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do thank you um, that uh, as we look at this text, that your spirit has something for, it, for us in it, that you gave us these stories, you gave us uh, these words to point us to Jesus, to encourage us, uplift us, and transform us. So I just pray now that as we look at these words that your spirit would illumine them to us, Change our hearts by them, and uh, and transform us into the people you call us to be. I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, John Steinbeck he wrote a, a book called East of Eden, um, and in that book he says this is I think this is interesting. Uh, well, it's not it's not that it's interesting. It's it's sort of it's like true. He says um, as few strokes on the nose of a of a, of a puppy. Oh, sorry, I read too fast. And as few strokes on the nose will make a puppy head shy, so a few rebuffs will make a boy shy all over. But whereas a puppy will cringe away or roll on its back, groveling, a little boy may cover his shyness with nonchalance, with bravado, or with secrecy. And once a boy has suffered rejection... He will find rejection even where it does not exist. Or worse, he will draw it forth from people simply by expecting it. Rejection is something we've all felt. And that rejection is what this text is all about. Um, we've all felt it. We all fear it. We all know the anxiety of anticipating rejection. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's defeating. It can paralyze you into a sort of mute and lonely, unproductive person. Fear of rejection, Cannon Steinbeck put it, uh, turn you into the kind of person that is easily rejected, and for a lot of reasons. If you think you're likely to be rejected and fear it, you're less likely to try hard. And so you go to nonchalance, like, well, if I, if I, because if I invest too much, and I get rejected, the pain will be too much. And so we become nonchalant. We don't take things as seriously as we might otherwise take them. Because if we're serious and you're rejected, the pain is just that much more. So as Steinbeck says, we take on an attitude of nonchalance or hide our ambitions and desires so as to avoid rejection. And in all the attempts at avoiding rejection, we only create circumstances that actually increase the possibility of it. Like it's just, it's just we, all, we all go through this, right? I've watched many single men never get a girlfriend because they don't want to be rejected by them, right? And and so they don't talk to them, right? Uh, I'm convinced that for the average Christian, the reason that we struggle to um, go up and pray for somebody because they look down is because we're afraid we're going to look weird and be rejected. The reason why we struggle to um, maybe reach out to somebody to encourage them is because it might, it might not be received the way we want it to and we'll feel a, a sting of rejection. The reason why we struggle with, um, with uh, being faithful in evangelism um, isn't necessarily because Christians don't think evangelism is necessary and good. It's usually because we're afraid that we're going to be rejected. Not just our message, but ourselves. We're going to be rejected. Rejection is something that paralyzes us as Christians. It prevents us from ministering to one another, caring for one another, loving one another, and it prevents us from serving those who need the hope of Jesus. Mark 6, then, we need, what I want you to see is that Mark 6 takes this fear of rejection, this reality of rejection, and it throws it in our face. It throws it in our faces, and it forces us to confront it. It forces us to see it and to deal with it. And hopefully, hopefully, um, and what I believe can be the truth, is that in facing it and in, in God putting it in front of us in this way will fill us with confidence in the joys and delights of Christ and His gospel, unleashing us from the paralyzation of, of the fear of rejection. In Mark, so far, we've seen Jesus arrive on the scene with good news. that He's bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. That kingdom's going to supplant demonic powers, sickness, corruption, political powers, corrupt religious powers, and even defeat death itself for a lowly and unimportant people like us. That's what we see happening. And last week, we saw Jesus' power on full display, on full display, over creation, sealing a storm, over demons, delivering a Gentile man from a legion of demons, And then you've got the woman with the bleeding disorder and then the little girl he raises from the dead, healing and bringing life from the dead, bringing in new creation. Jesus puts on this amazing, he puts on this powerful display over uncleanness and life from death. And then we turn to Mark 6. And it's like darkness comes. It's, it's It's like the mood changes. The whole tone changes in the book of Mark here as we turn to Mark chapter 6. And all that hope, all that promise, seems to start to slip through your fingers as you're reading through this text. Rather than this kingdom taking root and just dominating and real change begins to manifest, instead, the powers and forces of this world rise up in opposition and reject the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And we see this through all three of the sections of this text. We see this come out in various ways through all three of these sections. We see in verses 1 to 6 that Jesus himself is rejected. In verses 7 down to 13, we see that his apostles are going to be rejected. And then in verses 14 down to verse 29, we see that the prophets of God are rejected. And so we see rejection. Just pour out of this text, and so um, my hope is is that, as we look at it as we deal with it um that this the, the the that the the fear of rejection that we all know and all are affected by to one degree or another would not paralyze us, but is what I think we see happening in this text that it would instead that we would be able to face it, and it would uh, be fertile ground for us to launch out in faith fueled by delight in jesus, so that's what i'm hoping. We'll, we'll get to. So first, then Jesus is rejected in verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 to 6, Jesus is rejected. So I watch American Idol. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I like the show. I've always enjoyed it. I cry when I watch their silly stories being played with the music in the background. All of them. I, I, I just, I can't, my wife and I like to watch it. So anyway, One of the things that happens if you don't watch the show, and I'm not judging you if you don't, because you probably should judge me for watching it. But that being said, one of the things that happens in the show is at a certain point, I I don't know if there's 10, the top 10 contestants or top five, at some point in the top, what they do is they take each of the contestants and then they take them to their hometown. And when they get to the hometown, they show up in a limo. There's a crowd, there's a red carpet. There's a parade. There's a stage. There's celebration. The person, this person, goes to their hometown, and it's like the place erupts, embraces them. Oftentimes, what will happen is the mayor of a city will come out and give them a key to the city. Like it's it's like a whole pageant. There's pageantry and celebration. It's it's always you know, and it's good fodder for TV, right? So, after what we've just seen in chapters one to five. You would think Jesus is going to go to his hometown and that's what he's going to find, right? He's been out teaching and people's jaws are on the floor, astonished, right? He's standing up to the religious elite and the powers that be. He's, he's fighting for the little guy. He's healing the sick. He's delivering demons. He's raising people from the dead. You think he'd step foot in that town. There'd be red carpet, a parade. There'd be like, He's from here? Wow, Like, do you think that people would be astonished and would be celebratory of of Jesus? But what we find is that in verse 1, he goes home. He goes to his hometown in Nazareth. Verse 2, he goes to the church. And he goes to the synagogue, their version of church. He begins to do his thing. He gets in there. He starts teaching people. And it says there in verse... uh, I think it's verse 2 there. Yeah, verse 2. It says, uh, And many who heard him We're astonished. Now, there's more than one way to be astonished. (laughs) And if you've been reading in Mark up to this point, you think, oh, they're responding to Jesus just like everyone else did who heard him teach. But this kind of astonishment is not a positive kind of astonishment. They're astonished in a very negative way. They're not, they're not happy with what they're seeing. They're offended at what they're seeing being expressed and coming out of Jesus' mouth. They're, they're, uh, they're like, where does he get off? The little carpenter boy coming in here, taking over and running his mouth. Who does he think he is? Does he not know where he's from? That's, that's the attitude that you have here. And you can see the attitude come out even in the way in which they're talking, just the way they describe him where it says there um, in verse 3 when they're, they're saying, is this not the carpenter? That, that Just that phrase alone, carpenter was, it was a peasant job. It was a, it was a blue-collar labor job. Um, in, our, in our culture, we might uh, just call a day laborer. Is this not just a day laborer? Like, where does he get off? And then beyond that, notice the phrase there, the son of Mary. Now it's interesting. Like we don't really think much about that. Yeah, Jesus was Mary's son. People call me, you know, say, "Lynn's your father." In our culture, that phrase doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily mean much other than that's just who your parent is. In that culture, that was not the case though. If you were going to be speaking of speaking to somebody and try and uh, describe their family of origin, you would, you would do it in the name of the Father. So typically what you would expect to see is Jesus, the son of Joseph. And if you, in that culture, if you wanted to belittle or insult somebody, it was an insult to describe them as son of the mother. Now that's weird to us because we don't he- we don't think that way. But in that culture, this was one way that they would insult people: is they would call you the son of your mother. It was their version of a "yo mama" joke, but they meant it. Right? It wasn't just fun. Right? So they're 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 insulting. They're not just like they're not just like where does he get off? They they go to the extent of actually like verbally assaulting him, like verbally. Um, offending him, and then, what's interesting, is um, their astonishment leads to them being offended by him. Look at there in verse uh, verse three, the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. It's not just that they didn't believe him or weren't impressed; they're insulting him, and they find him offensive. They despise him, right? So there is no American Idol. Celebration. There's no red carpet here. Um, he he is just simply being rejected by his hometown. And then he repeats a phrase. You know, there uh, in verse four, it's a very common phrase. A lot of people have heard it. Where he says that, um, where he says, the prophet's not without honor, out honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This was not it's hard to know because all of the extra biblical research only shows like a couple places where this kind of phrase was being used. So it must've been, they're thinking it must've been something that was um, maybe more popular in that region. And we just don't have a lot of evidence for it, but this was a like a colloquial or just kind of a common saying among people at that time that the people from your house, from your town just generally aren't going to ever respect you and look up to you. And we, and we can kind of get that as people. And Jesus here is like, yeah, these people, they think I'm just the son of Mary. They think I'm just the son of Joseph. And what's interesting, the reason why I point this out is because Jesus is not worked up about this. This is what's bizarre. He's just like, yeah, prophet's not without honor in his own town. And then at the end of verse six, he marvels at their unbelief. And he just goes on teaching more. Like, (laughs) to me, it's just shocking to see that because I feel like, well, I don't know about you guys, but for me, my ego would be sufficiently wounded that I'd be like, am I doing the right thing in the world? Like, do do I need to stop? But Jesus seems unmoved in the face of this. Rather than the fear of rejection taking hold on him, he presses through it with a kind of confidence that most of us, I don't think, would imagine... Ever having. But the contrast here between this and chapter 5 is incredible. Chapter 5 literally shows people coming to Jesus, falling at his feet and begging him, doing anything they can just to touch him for their healing. And now in 6, we find people walking away, they're shaking their head, they're offended, <coughs> they're insulting him, rejecting him. And then that's why you'll find what we do in verse 5. He did not. Do many mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. When you look at the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, you see the people had faith, and Jesus responded with healing and work. And where there is no faith, there is no healing, or very little, right? And so you see that these people's response to him, their offense of him, is actually hurting them not him he's just marching forward jesus here is rejected he and he it says there he marvels at their lack of faith he's shocked to see them actually despise and reject all the glory power and hope that his kingdom could bring to them and when you compare this with like 542 where they're marveling that the girl was raised from the dead or in five thirty three, where she's filled with fear and awe of Jesus for healing her of a bleeding disorder. Or in, uh, or in uh, five twenty, where the where you've got the dude with the demon who's marveling and amazed at Jesus and going out and spreading his fame through all the people. Or at the end of chapter four and verse forty one, where the disciples are on the boat in awe of Jesus, and now Jesus is the one in awe. <laughs> Jesus here in chapter six. He's the one in awe, and what he's in awe of is these people don't know what they're missing. They're rejecting the very thing that they need. Everyone's in awe in chapter 5, and now they're offended, irritated, insulting, rejecting him. And Jesus is now in awe, not because of how great Nazareth is, but because of how profound their rejection is. And the rea- I think as we think through this, one of the things that's come to my mind is the fact that we have all rejected Jesus in this way. This is not a, a problem in Nazareth. This is, this is a universal issue. Uh, we easily become bored with Him. And even the people in those other towns that, that those days were expressing faith and expressing interest and in awe of Him, they're one day going to be joining with the crowd crying to crucify Him, right? And this is all of us. We're, eat, we're very fickle in our, in our awe of Jesus and quick to reject Him. Not only Him, but His demands upon us, as well as what He would offer us in the Gospel. And, and this is where a lot of our struggle with sin comes from. As we look at Jesus, we look at who He is for us, and we reject it for the pleasure and joys that we could find in sin. And so this is this is something that we all experience. And yet, the gospel speaks to us in this. Rather than Jesus rejecting us, he continues and he presses forward, just as he does in this text. He comes after you, taking on flesh. He experiences the pain of rejection by suffering on the cross, feeling rejected even by the Father when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And he did all this so that you wouldn't have to be rejected by God so that you wouldn't have to be rejected. Jesus in this way has entered into our pain of rejection, and then the gospel is rejected and punished for us, so that we don't ever have to fear rejection, but only the love and joy that we have with God through Christ. And so, Jesus is rejected, and it's good news that he is. Right, it's good news that he is. But there's more. There's more rejection going on in here. So uh, next, that we see the apostles are rejected in verses seven down to thirteen. The apostles are rejected. It says there in verse seven, he calls the twelve and began to send them out to, by two. Jesus is undaunted by his rejection. Uh, he moves forward, as we saw at the end of verse six. Says he went about teaching. So Jesus is not filled with with fear. He's not paralyzed by rejection. He's not defeated or hesitant or unsure. He looks at rejection. He sort of eats it. He eats it up, consumes it, moves forward, and then he doubles down. Is it 12,000? Like maybe 12,000%? Twelve? 12? I don't know what the percentage is. But he doubles down. We'll just say he doubles down on his efforts to build the kingdom. He's not hesitant. He goes harder and further. He takes his 12 disciples in the face of all that rejection, and he says, okay, I'm going I'm to basically deputize you 12, and I want you to go out and do more of this. Go out and just do more. It, rather than rejection slowing him, it just multiplies it by 12. Right? It's just crazy. It's like, cut the head off a dragon and 12 more come. And that's, that's, that's what you find happening here. He doubles down on his effort to bring the kingdom of God. And verses 7 through 13 then shows us now how, in the face of rejection, Jesus expands his kingdom work by empowering his apostles to go out and and basically imitate him throughout the land, to go out and be his representatives doing the work that he did. And the work that he did, we see in verse 7, that Jesus gives them power over demons, to cast out demons. In verse 12, he gives them authority to preach and to call people to repent just like he was doing up to this point. In verse 13, again, we see that he has power over demons and power to heal and to bring about sickness. So these guys, when they're, going, when they're being sent out by Jesus, they are doing the very work that Jesus was doing. So that even if Jesus himself wasn't physically present there, his kingdom and his work is being ushered in by these other people. Um, at my job, working at the local hospital I work at here, um, uh, the, we have an electronic health record called EPIC, which uh, you've probably all heard me drone on about, um, and this uh, EPIC is um, in a little town just kind of south of Madison called Verona, out in the middle of nowhere. There's a huge campus. It's, people go out and tour it. It's pretty amazing, but it's literally in a cornfield. Anyway, um, each year, there's usually an opportunity for us to go and do a business trip up at Epic. I had opportunity in May, but couldn't do it. Um, But uh, there's, you know, people will often go up and take, uh, from my office, take business trips up there. And when they go, uh, they're given, you're given a hotel. Our hospital pays for your hotel. We're given a rental car so that we don't have to drive our own car. And they cover our gas money. Uh, They give us per diem for food. Uh, They pay, um, and then you actually get paid your normal paycheck while you're there. You you get taken care of. This is common. This is not uncommon. This is the way, this is the way a business sends their representatives out on business. This is what this is this is normal. This is a very common thing. They when they send you out, they take care of you, they pamper you a bit, they make you comfortable. This is not how Jesus sends his folks out. (laughs) There's a reason why I point this out, because this is not happening here. When Jesus sends his disciples out, he's not like, okay, let me get you a rental car, get you a comfortable hotel, and get you some really good food. No. What what does he do here when he sends them out? In the face of rejection, right, this is how Jesus is going to send them out. As vulnerable as he can possibly make them, right? It's so crazy. He says here in... um, uh in verses 8 to 11 where he where he where you see this he says take nothing for your journey except a staff no bread no nothing to eat right no bag so you can't like no extra clothes like you can't bring your belongings no money uh you got to wear sandals and you can't put on two tunics so the you can't put on two tunics that sounds weird to us but essentially what would back in that day People would wear a tunic to basically protect them from the sun and whatnot, and it was you know, like wearing a coat. Well, people would take two tunics with them if they, if they were going on a journey because a second tunic would keep you warm at night. And Jesus is basically saying, you can't have two tunics. Um, you're not gonna, you, you basically are forced to find someone that will be willing to give you lodging. And if not, you're going to freeze. It's going to be cold. He's not taking care of... <laughs> it's just so bizarre. It's so opposite of the way we think of sending people out. <laughs> he, does, he intentionally sends them out with nothing to make them dependent upon the provision and hospitality of the people that they're going to visit. And then he says, oh, and by the way, there's going to be some of these people who reject you. There's going to be some of these people who reject you. Jesus is making them... Ext- in the Jesus is just rejected... So he sends out his disciples who are also going to be rejected and they're going to be destitute unless people don't reject them. What is it like Jesus is, he's just like put the pedal to the metal, right? This is like, this is hardcore what Jesus is doing here. Take nothing, he says. This is like my boss telling me to go to Epic and live like a homeless person but not take any supplies to care for myself while I'm there. You would quit your job if that's, if that's what someone told you, right? You would quit your job. And then, it, and then, like I said, it gets even more intense in verse 11, and oh yeah, even though you have nothing and no way to care for yourselves, people are going to reject you like they did me in Nazareth. right? That's what's going to happen. And at the end of verse 11, he encourages them to not make a big deal of it, just like he didn't. Look at verse 11. Uh, verse 11, at the very end of that, it says, um, if, they don't, if they don't receive you uh, and don't listen to you when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Just shake the dust off your feet and move on your way. <laughs> it just sounds so, just like you, his response in Nazareth, it sounds like that kind of, no, okay, well, we'll just move along and go to the next place and, and just keep just keep being rejected. <laughs> it's just, it's bizarre. It's It's a bizarre text. It sounds nuts. He's telling them not only that they will be rejected and uncared for, but they should not be upset by it. So what is happening here? I think Jesus is saying this. He says, I'm going to send you out with my power to do my work, and you should expect to live by faith the way Jesus lived. Not by your own strength and planning. And you should also expect to experience the same rejection I experience and respond to it in faith the same way I do. That's what's happening here. Jesus, Jesus says, if you want to go out and you want to use my power and speak my message, you're going to do it the way I do it, which is in faith. And, I'm gonna, and you're going to experience rejection just like me. Jesus in sending out the apostles is making clear that they are not merely to re- represent his power and message, but to represent it in his own experience and actually like, be a fully involved image of Jesus in the world such that when cities see the apostles, when, the, when, they, when these villages and cities see the apostles coming in, they're seeing and they're hearing Jesus when they come in. right? Not just his power, but even the rejection and faith he endures. This means that rejection is not an accident in the apostles' story or ministry. Not an accident. It's actually a feature of it. It's a feature of their ministry. Designed by God so that they could represent and image Jesus clearly to the world. Uh, And you see this so clearly in Philippians chapter 1. If you'll flip over to Philippians in your Bibles. Philippians, Paul, um, he goes on about this in Philippians chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 12 down to 14. You hear Paul's thinking through this. It's interesting when you read his words here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has already served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul's rejected and imprisoned for preaching Christ. But it's advanced the gospel his rejection has advanced the kingdom and most of the brothers having become confident in the lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear that rejection for paul is a feature that of the of the kingdom of god that moves the gospel forward that moves the kingdom forward and also emboldens the church <laughs> and we see jesus i mean showing us that design at the very beginning the very beginning of his ministry and this this should well the gospel frees us to experience rejection knowing that it does not define or control us but it's actually a feature of the kingdom and the fuel of kingdom expansion it, it moves things forward in some mysterious way and it should encourage us on mission evangelizing in a culture that has rejected Christianity's and rejected the church as ours has when you faithfully love people and point them to Jesus and they reject your message and maybe even you, in your willingness to be rejected by them, you actually image Christ to them and to the community around you. In your willingness to, and, and not being paralyzed by that, but moving forward in faith, you actually, you're actually imaging Jesus very effectively. Not just with your words, but in your, in your, in your willingness to receive from them what, what they bring. This means that the experience of rejection is meaningful. It's not a loss. Oftentimes when we're rejected, it feels like that's all there is. It's just defeat. And in this, we find that rejection is not defeat. It makes Jesus look awesome to be rejected and to receive it in loving patience and to move forward through it. It should help you look rejection in the eye. And though it's scary, you can know that in Jesus' hands, rejection is not a beast that's going to consume you, but you can actually consume it. And take it in and wield it for the purpose of building God's kingdom just the way Jesus did. It gives us power over rejection through the gospel. So it doesn't define us, but it actually propels us. So we see the apostles are going to be rejected. We see that Jesus is rejected. Now let's see the prophets rejected in verses 14 through 29. This is an interesting part of the passage. Um, uh, Things like ratchet up to the highest degree of rejection in this passage. It's not just cities rejecting Jesus' and his apostles' teaching. Now there's a rejection of God's kingdom at the highest levels of Jewish government, and with the most extreme form of rejection, the death penalty. So this is like rejection at its most potent and extreme form. So what's happening in this section is it details for us the death of John the Baptist, but what what precipitates Mark's description of the death of of John the Baptist is there's this debate going on, and we find this debate in verses uh, in verses 14 uh, down through 20. And what's what's happening is people are trying to make sense of what's going on with Jesus. They're looking at this guy going around preaching, astonishing people, healing people, raising people from the dead, controlling the oceans and whatnot, and and they're they're like. What's going on with this? Who is this guy? And what's really interesting as we read this, um, you see this in, uh, in verse 15. Uh, they refuse, in their minds, they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the one actually doing the things that are going on. They've so fully rejected him that whatever good he's doing and whatever power he exposes, couldn't actually be him, right? He's so dismissed, he's so common, he's so normal that it couldn't be him doing any of the things that he's doing if they're real. And so in verse 15 it says, but people said, he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, right? They're so dismissive of him and so naturally reject and despise him that their minds can't fathom that Jesus is out there doing the things he's doing himself. And the only way they can make sense of it happening is if like, some other spirit is animating and empowering his his ministry, like Elijah, or even, as we'll see, Herod thinks it's John the Baptist resurrected, right? Verse 16, we see that. uh, It says there, um, it says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. John thinks... (laughs) Herod, or that he thinks that John the Baptist is raised from the dead and is out there doing all these miracles, right? Now, there's good reason for Herod to think this. Um, He's caught, and he had went out and captured, arrested, and imprisoned John the Baptist. He had him beheaded, and he felt real guilt and real sorrow for killing a prophet of God, right? And I'm sure that Herod's conscience aided him, and when he laid on his bed at night, he had nightmares about this. And um, I'm sure he feared for whatever judgment might come his way for his role in John the Baptist's death. He had a very sore conscience over it. And you can see that, and we'll see it later, just how strong he was, how much anguish he was in over over what he had done. And so we have in verses 17 to, to 29 then is a retelling of the events of John the Baptist's capture at the hands of King Herod, and the events that led to John the Baptist's execution. Mark includes this section here as an explanation for why Herod was worried that Jesus was John the Baptist, right? Assuming that he would, uh, Mark was assuming we don't know the history here of what happened to John the Baptist. All of a sudden, John the Baptist is dead, and Herod thinks he's been raised, but Mark's like, yeah, but I didn't tell him John the Baptist died, so I better include that story here (laughs) so I can get everyone up to speed, right? It's like a cutaway um, in a movie where you get some background information to help you understand the importance of the scene. And without going into too much detail, we'll summarize how it came that John was seized and killed. We find um, there's King Herod, king over Israel. He's married to a woman named Herodias. And this marriage is illegal or it's unlawful according to the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 18, it says that um, a man should not lay with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, being a prophet, uh, preaching the word of God and being a rather bold and the kind of guy that doesn't have the fear of rejection in him at all, <laughs> is happy to stand before the king or, or to speak about the king in a manner that suggests the king is living in sin. And he's doing this out while he's preaching. He's saying, ah, the king's unlawful and their marriage, their marriage is, is a sham. Well, Herodias, king's wife, is ticked off about this. She's offended by it. And so she wants him arrested. So Herod, he complies, wants to make his wife happy, happy wife, happy life. He goes out, he has John arrested and seized and Herodias wants him dead. But the king is like, ah, I, I like him. <laughs> I kind of like him. Yeah, he says some pretty harsh things about me, but when he talks, like it's compelling. I, I like the guy. I'm not going to kill him. And so he refused to kill him. Um, and then you've got this party. It's his birthday. And we see the party there in verses 21 down to 29. There's this party that, um, that comes up. And at his birthday party... Um, It it was common in these days that the king would invite all kinds of other religious and political elite to come in for a party. And it was kind of like one of those parties that you would imagine happen up on Capitol Hill, right? You've got the, all the cultural elites, all these rich people in their fancy clothes and they've got the peons coming in and would you like a drink? So, you know, like that kind of thing. And then as you also can imagine that, uh, that has been exposed, um, very clearly over the last several years, um, is that these can be pretty salacious parties. They'll bring strippers, they'll bring in all kinds of people, and they and basically it'll be, you know, a, a very salacious event. And this was exactly what was happening here. Herod's having a birthday party, they hire some strippers to come in and please the men, and that's what's happening. Right? Um, and so uh we we get this. Crazy, weird party happening, celebrating Herod's birthday. And one of the things that would happen in that culture is if one of the dancers and performers would come in and do a particularly good job, it was common that the king would offer up like a gift or what we would call a tip. You know, they would tip them. Uh, and the king would be like, you deserve a tip. What do you want? And the king would be very generous. It was, and it was kind of a, a power move. On behalf of the king, the king's got all these other people around him, all these other re- religious and political elites around him and if he could say, "I'll give you half of my kingdom," it just shows a kind of like confidence, I have power, I have money, I have control here. you can have whatever you want you know kind of what you know rich person like just showing off he's showing off here and so her what happens in the midst of all of this is that Herodias's daughter is sent in to dance, she impresses the king, and he wants to give her a wish. And uh, there's a lot of speculation on this, there's been a lot of writing on it, but what's generally assumed is that this this was conspired by Herodias and the daughter. There was a conspiracy here. Herodias probably did what she needed to do to get her daughter in there because she knew her daughter could possibly win the affection of the king she did and then the king says what do you want and then herodias whispers in her ear hey i want john the baptist head she was determined to kill john the baptist she wanted john the baptist dead and so then that's what happens she she tells him hey i want john the baptist head on a platter and john the baptist is beheaded by uh king herod and his head is literally brought on a platter it's a disgusting crazy scene that i was laughing about with brenda when she was saying hey What's going on in the text today? So I can get some stuff for the kids' ministry today. (laughs) And I'm like, how about a coloring picture of King Herod's, or not King Herod, of John the Baptist's head on a platter? The kids would really like that. No. Um, Anyway. (laughs) Um, But notice verse 26 it says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He he put on this power of display, or this display of power. And authority, and he couldn't back down, right? He couldn't wimp out in front of all these people. He had to follow through on what he promised. And it says he felt exceedingly sorry. And there's what's interesting is this word is only used one other time in the Gospels. And it's in uh actually it's in Mark 14, 34, where you have Jesus in the Gethsemane praying before the Father, and he's filled with exceeding sorrow about what's coming with the cross. So this is like. This is the kind of sorrow that produced sweat like drops of blood in Jesus. That is how heavy Herod's heart is, and that was the degree of love that he had for John, despite the fact that he had him in prison in chains. and yet he approved and ordered the execution, and now John is dead, and his head is on a platter and his head is on a platter. And in this, Herod is looking at the ministry of Jesus, rejecting Jesus as a legit actor right couldn't actually be this guy from Nazareth and is scared out of his mind that John the Baptist rose from the dead and is coming after him for his murder that's what's happening here it's a it's a, it's a crazy wild scene we have re- Jesus we have here Jesus rejected as even being the one doing his ministry which is just weird and we have John the Baptist, a prophet of God rejected imprisoned and then killed. So we have the prophet of God killed as well as Jesus himself being rejected. So what's going on? Why is Mark why does Mark want us to see this? Again, in keeping with the theme of rejection, this this is not just a theme in Jesus's ministry. This is the theme of history, of human history. Genesis chapter 3 was the first manifestation of rejection on earth. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the very first rejection. Adam and Eve reject the rule of God. right? When they chose to eat of the the apple, of the fruit, um, they rejected God's authority. They rejected God as God and wanted to be God themselves. God removes them, but he does not utterly reject them. And he determines, we see this in verse 15, that there's this promise of hope in verse 15 of chapter 3 in Genesis 3, that God is determining to reconcile himself to us and to win us back. So all of human history throughout the Bible up to today is a story about humanity rejects God and God patiently, graciously works to win us back to himself. That is the story of the Bible. That's the story of of what God is doing in and for us and this is why one of the most common images we find between God and his people in the Old Testament and even the New Testament is that of a husband and wife where a wife goes out and cheats on her husband and the husband is going out to try to win his wife back the, hu- the wife rejects her husband and the husband wins her back this is this is the image of God coming after his people God has been rejected and he longs to be reconciled with his people and Then, when we come to Luke chapter 13 and verse 34, we find also, so we have that whole history, but then we also have this image of Jesus saying, and these are his words, Jerusalem, the killer of prophets. So every time God seeks to send his servant to do the work of reconciling the people back to God, they kill them because we reject God so much. We in our rejection of God starting in Genesis chapter 3, we don't want to be reconciled back to God. That's the human condition. We don't want it. God's coming after us trying to to reach us and to and to save us and what happens is we just reject him. And so Israel throughout its history kills their prophets. Isaiah is killed by by the religious elite in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is Zechariah is and that's just the name of few. The prophets of God are killed, imprisoned, rejected, by Israel all throughout because they don't want to be reconciled back to God. And so also John the Baptist, as he was killed in a similar manner that we find in First Kings 18. This is crazy. I'm not going to go into it because I'm already probably running long. I haven't looked at the time, but I'm just going to read First Kings 18. First Kings 18, 1 King 18 is a story of Jezebel and Ahab, where Jezebel basically does the same thing that we find here uh, with Herod and his wife um, and her working to get the prophets of God killed. It's just, this, is just a, this is a theme. This is a story as old as the creation story. And Jesus not only endures this, but he is the manifestation of God's willingness to endure our rejection that he might win us back and restore us. And we're presented with these pictures of rejection, not because God arbitrarily determined rejection needs to be a part of the story here in Mark. That's, that's not just some arbitrary decision to show us these stories of rejection here. It actually is the story. This is the story of the gospel. And Jesus not only endures it, his kingdom comes into the world willing and ready to experience it and then win victoriously over it to bring joyful and gro- glorious triumph over it. Right? That's the whole, that's the gospel story. And here's the key here is the good news for us. Rejection does not stop the kingdom. Like, we, we look at rejection, we think, oh, that's, that's, that's gonna stop it. And it doesn't. It does not slow the kingdom. It's the pathway of the kingdom. This is the pathway of the kingdom of God. And Mark is trying to show us that the kingdom of God is not coming through these crazy miracles, that those, those are part of it, but that's not the pathway. The pathway is through rejection and through death. Jesus' kingdom runs straight through Rejectionville. Put that in your map. It's a feature of Jesus' kingdom, and His kingdom is designed to flourish through rejection and triumph over and through it. I don't know about you, but I struggle with the fear of rejection. I struggle with it all the time. And I think we all do. Some try to chalk that up all just to pride and fear of man. And there's a conversation to be had about that. There is some of that going on, I'm sure, in all of us. But rejection is painful. And if we don't fear it, there'd be a real problem with our hearts. We were created to fear rejection. There's a reason why God wanted Adam, and wanted Adam to not be alone. He wanted him to feel accepted and loved. And we weren't designed to be rejected. We were designed to be in community with one another, with God and one another. And so to be rejected is to feel the pain of a kind of dehumanization. And so it's good and it's right to not enjoy that and to fear it because it isn't a good thing. It hurts. But we don't also have to be paralyzed by it. It shouldn't paralyze us. That we we can step out and make a fool of ourselves and experience that pain Uh, Because it's in rejection that the kingdom of God actually comes with power to exert itself and bring life and joy and flourishing. We were bidden by the gospel to come in and face it. This is why Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what must he do? He must pick up his cross and follow me daily. Picking up the cross means saying, I'll be rejected the way Jesus was rejected. That's the call of the gospel. It's not just a call. It's not just a call to uh, trust in Jesus because he could do miracles like he did in chapter 5. It's a call to join him and image him in the experience of rejection. And then, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where Jesus um, endures rejection, he endures the cross, triumphing over it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured all of that knowing what, what, what the kingdom of God would eventually be through that rejection. And, and for us, that should fuel our fears of rejection and empower, them, empower us to press through them. So that when we know someone needs prayed for, and we feel that, uh, well, are they going to reject me? Press through it, because the kingdom of God wants to emerge and work and as we do that we we not only pray for people and encourage them we actually image Jesus to them and we do the same with our neighbors rather than fearing their rejection when we preach when we speak the gospel of Jesus to them it's not just our words but we're imaging that gospel work of Jesus to our neighbors around us so don't fear rejection in this in this way and be paralyzed by it instead see it feel the sting of it then eat it consume it And know it has no power over you and cannot and will not define you, but is actually fuel for the kingdom of God through you. So let's pray and ask for God's help with that because I know I need it. (laughs) Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for how the scripture challenges us in this way. Um, It's just crazy. Every time I open up the Bible and start studying a passage to preach on it, I'm always just shocked and amazed by what it is I find. And I had no idea I was going to be preaching about rejection this week until I started reading this. And I just thank you that you confront us with these things in these ways. And I just pray that um, for all of us, that we would uh, be filled with faith and that uh, we would not despise you, uh, but that we would joyfully accept the rejection that is the pathway to your kingdom, and in so doing, find and enjoy the joy that we have in Jesus through it. So I just pray that you would um, that you that you would just cause us to see the wisdom and the glory that there is that you're triumphing over uh, over these things through us and for us, and that we wouldn't be discouraged by it or paralyzed by it, but uh, but joy, overjoyed and. Um, Press on in it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.